The essence of William Glass's choice theory is that in every situation, every behavior that you live out, that there's always four parts to the behavior. There's always thought, action, emotion, and your underlying physiological state. And that you can't change your physiology or your emotional state directly, but by changing what you're thinking about and what you're doing, you can indirectly change your emotional and physical state. I'm here this morning with David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear, mate. Now, we've referenced William Glasser in a few episodes, I think even since episode two, we were talking about how to learn because, of course, it references to teaching, which I'm sure we'll get into that later about how much William Glasser has impacted your teaching method. But it's something I'm curious on. You know, I haven't read the book. I know you have. It's 20 years old, so it's not as if it's anything particularly new, but perhaps you know we can start by talking about why the book is important to you. I forget, I think, sometimes how important it was when I found it and how much it's influenced me and how much, you know, so many parts of the book are just in how I function intellectually, how I function as a teacher, how I function as a person. It was early in my PhD and I was realizing that there were a whole school of existential psychology and psychiatry that, though fascinating, was largely incomprehensible. It made the assumption that you were a psychologist or psychiatrist and that you were an existentialist on top of it and that you then wanted to create something even more rarefied and otherworldly. And I did the work to make sense of that stuff because I needed to for my research. But I was looking for things that were similar in the sense that They empowered people and people had to be responsible for their own meaning. And in a way, I guess my residual stoicism was looking for things more grounded in you can apply this now. Everyone can apply it. You don't have to change your worldview to make use of it. And I suppose the other thing that was significant on top of wanting to find something that was more grounded in something resembling stoicism was looking for a psychological psychiatric perspective that was more grounded in virtue ethics that the rules in it were very small you could carry them with you everywhere and apply them to almost everything so how could you get a simple small psychological slash psychiatric understanding that was both stoic and founded on virtue ethics that you could carry with you as a small easily applicable parcel that was probably my starting point well, it's, I suppose it's kind of convenient then that it kind of fell into your lap then because it kind of seems to fit, well, fit all of those. It was strangely convenient in that at the time I knew a couple of psychiatrists. So I read the book and went, whoa, this is amazing. I think this is awesome. Oh, ooh, I wonder if any of the psychiatrists I know would help me make more sense of this. Anyway, I asked one of the psychiatrists, I knew, could you please read this and help me understand it? And he went away, comes back, and I go, okay, can we talk about it? And he's like, no. I don't know why. It contradicts everything I've been trained in. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I'm like, oh, well, that tells me a lot about you, but also makes me very happy Mm. because (laughs) I was far more convinced in what I read than anything that ever come out of his mouth. So when I looked further, you find out that Glasser was an outlaw. Mm. Glasser had to create his own think tank 
because he had got so outside the world of American psychiatry that they didn't want a bar of him. And yet I then started tutoring people and I started having students from Europe who were psychology majors. And in European universities, they were all doing Glasser in second year. They had to, there was no choice. It was deemed so significant. Mm. I'm like, oh, okay, so another case where we're backward. Yeah, right. So it's the same in Australia as it is in America? Pretty much. Yeah. There's one psychiatrist here in Adelaide who went and trained with Glasser and from what, you know, People have said to me, when she got here, she was treated like a complete and utter outsider. Wow. Because her worldview was so radically different to the people she was meant to be working with. It flies in the face of uh, what they have in America, which is, is it the DM4, DM4? Is oh, we're now to DSM5. That's it, yeah. I think the big thing, and you know, we'll actually jump into what he talks about in a minute, but mm. it's important to probably set why he was an outsider. Here's a guy that in the mid-1990s when he starts writing Choice Theory, it comes out 97 or 98, is a categorical believer that depression is nothing to do with a chemical imbalance in your head. Mm. So he has preempted Johan Hari's book, mm. which we will talk about later, by 20 years, by going, you know, depression is not a chemical imbalance in your head. It's something the world has caused and that you've responded to. And that Glasser treated people for depression in that way his whole career and famously said in the late 90s, whole career as a psychiatrist have never handed antidepressants out once, have never needed to, which put him so dramatically at odds with mainstream mental health care Mm. in the 90s and for the decade after. So I loved the fact that he was going, no, what you're going through is a response to the world And it's about how you think and what you choose to do. And we can change that. And in changing that, we can change how you feel and your physiology. So his famous test for depression was taking people who, you know, had been described as depressed and going, okay, going to make you do a whole pile of exercise, things like hiking or running or jogging with a friend who is supportive but doesn't go poor you. Mm. And then keep resurveying how you say you feel. Oh, gee, look, two hours of exercise endorphins and spending time with a friend who cares about you but doesn't go poor you and you're answering all the surveys differently guess what you change what you do you change what you think about you'll change your feelings and your physiology and that went down like a lead balloon with mainstream mental health in america because what it said is actually you need to find the time to counsel people properly look after them properly engage with them properly and they will get over the majority of mental health problems without the need for drugs. Mm. Well, I want to get into some of the key concepts, but I think in his background it's important to also mention uh, I, I recently, very recently, even just this morning, found out that he was a student of Maslow. Yes, which is another reason why I'm like, okay, someone who recognised that human needs are at the bottom of everything taught this guy grounding him in if it's not directly affecting how someone can live their day what are you doing? How are you really helping? You know, if you haven't got them sorted with basic physical needs, then you can't move on to security needs. If you haven't supported security needs, you can't move on to love and belonging. If you haven't sorted love and belonging, you can't move on to esteem. And the critical thing for Glasser is everything that brings a client to see a counsellor, his, in his opinion, is about a current relationship. Because if we start to solve current love and belonging, we can deal with almost anything else. 
Mm. If we feel that we love and we belong now, almost everything else can be managed. We'll get better at it. But if we don't solve love and belonging now, doesn't matter how deep dive we do into analysis, things won't ever get better in his opinion. When I was kind of reading up a bit about Glasser, I haven't read the book, but the, the key concepts struck me as very similar to Maslow's hierarchy. But what is the key difference, would you say, between the two? I guess Maslow, what he concluded was that at the top of his, you know, his hierarchy above self-esteem and respect and dignity, I think there were the three on the fourth level, above that is self-actualization. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you be the best you can be? In a sense, Glasser didn't put that at the top of a pyramid, the last thing you got to. For Glasser, he put that thing of your ideal, he made that ab- absolutely fundamental. He made that the essence of what he calls the quality world. And the quality world was something he thought was really important. You need to know what you've put in your quality world because if you can live up to it, you're likely to be okay. If you have an unattainable quality world, you're likely to forever feel like you failed and likely to be miserable, which is likely to lead to depression and wreck your relationships. So for him, a quality world was a vision of all the things that make up who you want to be, how you want to be, who you want to be connected to, how you feel about those people, how you see them, how you see yourself, how you see your career, what you're going to try and achieve, how you're going to define your goals, how you're going to get there. Your quality world is full of all the things that whether you know it or not are important to you. And Glass's argument is we all have quality worlds, even if we don't know they exist. Almost everyone has their parents in there simply because they're the first important people in our lives. Almost all of us have our partner in there. Almost all of us will have some former partner in there. Almost all of us will have our close friends in there. All of us will have an ideal for career. We'll have an ideal for intellectual development. We'll have an ideal for emotionally who we want to be. We'll have some practical goals we want to achieve. And if we don't know what's in there, we'll so often feel like we've been thwarted by something or unsatisfied and not know why. So big thing with Glasser is rather than thinking you self-actualize, you become like a perfected self at the end. His is like, no, if you don't understand your quality world early of who you want to be, who you want to relate to, have ideals, but keep them within reason so you can meet them. Have goals, but keep them within reason so you can meet them. Have your structure of how you're going to behave in there, but make it doable not unattainable otherwise you'll always feel like you're failing and i remember when i read the chapter on the quality world that initially i'm like this is bullshit this is just soft cock pointless shit and then i thought about it and went oh now i know why i think that because my entire quality world is full of unattainable things Mm. (laughs) (laughs) you know at the time i was reading this it was full of i am going to be a solo violinist live and work in London, and buy Stradivarius. Mm. What became an unattainable goal when my wrist imploded? Mm. I'm going to hold myself to a standard of virtue ethics, stoicism, and Camusian existentialism that Camus, Nietzsche, and Epictetus could be proud of. Well, that was pretty stupid. (laughs) (laughs) They're dead. (laughs) And they're not going to be proud of someone that's not trying to be themselves. Mm. So for me, that was a massive wake-up of, oh... 
Why is it so hard to attain my philosophical standards? Because I've created them out of perfect examples. Mm. Oh, I better make a living version. So I think what I got out of Glass's quality world was an amazing ability to step back from perfect and find standards that I could apply every day that as long as I applied the standard, it didn't matter if I got the end point. So it transcended me from pushing hard to get ends to working consistently to get the same means achieved every day. As long as I lived by my means, I could give up whether I got the ends I wanted. So what are some other key concepts from this book? I mean, that's a pretty it's, it's a pretty big thing to take in, but it's obviously not what the whole book is about. No, that one's huge. Now, audience, to put it into perspective, when I read it, I lent the book to one of the most important people in my life who proceeded to throw it back at me and it nearly missed my head. <laughs> so this is a book that if it pushes buttons in you, can push buttons in a pretty big way. <laughs> mm. um, you know, over the 20 years since it's been written... There's some things that he overestimated, perhaps like the impact of what you're thinking and what you're doing on autoimmune disorders. He didn't get them wrong, he overestimated them. So read the book with a degree of scepticism, take what's useful. Most of it is still very powerful and if it rings deep enough, um, could make you quite angry like it did with me with the quality world stuff. I suppose after the quality world from memory, the next big idea you encounter in the book is the idea that the biggest problem we all have is external control psychology. That everyone thinks they know what is good for us and we think we know what is good for other people. And in doing so, everyone is constantly manipulating us and we are constantly manipulating other people. And it may well be for apparently good reasons. They might be trying to twist our arm psychologically or emotionally because they think if they, you know, we do what they're asking, we'll be better off. But what this means is we've constantly got other people challenging our quality worlds and denying us our freedom to choose. And I realised that this rang very deeply with me from going to primary school for the blind, where they were some of the best-intentioned, kindest humans I have ever met, my teachers at blind primary school. And at some weird level, I love all of them for caring so much, but I also resent every single one of them for how much they thought they knew what was good for me. When if I look back, I'd say, they didn't know shit. Mm. They had no idea how smart I was. They had no idea how emotionally open my brain was. They had no idea how intellectually crushing the mediocrity they taught was for me. I remember in grade seven of primary school, I'd done grade seven in grade six because I was bored out of my mind in grade five, mm. so they decided to put me in grade seven at grade six. So suddenly instead of being in the class with all my friends who are my age, I'm a year ahead with people ranging from 12 to basically 14, those who've gone through Townsend right from the beginning, those who've done poorly in mainstream schools come back in. So this grade seven class is a combination of both grade seven and essentially first year high school to get people back up to speed to leave to go out to mainstream high schools. Mm. And I'm the 11 year old in it. Mm. And it was only marginally more psychologically stimulating and was profoundly messed up. Most of the people in it either were already like me, profoundly sick and tired and bored of being in blind primary school or they'd been bullied or failed in mainstream schools and were having all sorts of issues with sense of self identity, how to relate to other people, those who've been bullied, guess what? 
found a group of people they could bully. Mm. So that was a truly shit year. So grade seven proper happens where I'm repeating grade seven. No, I'm going to be bored out of my mind. And instead we get a year 12 high school English teacher who'd been working in the blind unit at Dover High. You know, Patty Ayres, an amazing lady who gave us freedom, put the work in front of us and said, you want to learn, I'll teach you. You don't want to learn, you'll do very badly. And it was a total shift from external control psychology to just putting information in front of us. And, you know, the, the workload was high. But if you got it wrong, it was simple. Well, you didn't get the work done in the hour. You stay in for the second half of lunch. Go eat and then come back and do the work you missed. Now, in grade seven, this was probably pretty shocking to a bunch of blind kids who'd been coddled and cajoled in one direction. Mm. I loved it. Now, mm. I couldn't have said what Patty did, but what she did was move from external control psychology to only putting things in front of us. External control psychology. Can you put that in a bit of context? It comes mm. up constantly in Glass's book, and it really it boils down to when... The rest of the world doesn't put information in front of you that you can make a choice about. It just demands you do what it says and mm. claims it's for a good reason but tries not to give you any choices. So take primary school. Now, do you remember, say, maybe grades one, two, three were fun in that there was more art, there was more time to do fun things, draw, there was more fun, you know, there were things like theatre, music, but about grade four or five it was just sit and in pointless repetition do the same mindless sums or the same mindless grammar. The that's choice right. fell away? Yeah, that's probably, that's very accurate. Okay, yeah. up until about grade three, you've got to use some level of choice theory on kids or they turn off completely. So immaterial of what the external system is that teachers are meant to be using, most primary school teachers try and give you choices to some degree, at least initially, mm. until the testing starts. And then they just have to get you to do the pointless work. So it's, no, it doesn't matter what you want to do. It doesn't matter if you're interested. Here's what you've got to do. I will tell you it's good for you, but you'll be doing it one way or the other. Mm. That's when most of us first hit external control. So as a little kid, do you remember the difference between parents and relatives and grown-ups who would yell at you and go, you can't do that, but give you no choice? You just get told off and told to stop. Mm. But then there'd be better adults who would go, look, if you continue to do that, you're either going to break that thing, break yourself, or just really piss me off. How would you like to do any of these two other activities? Mm. Now, do you remember how easily it was to change gear to the two other activities? Because you realized, well, one of them might be fun, and that way I won't be annoying a grown-up who's going to make my life difficult. I'm very sure everyone remembers an experience like that. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, we all encounter some level of choice theory from the adults we end up coming to love and respect rather than ones we just, you know, tolerate. So I'm guessing from meeting your mum, she would have been an awesome give you two other choices human. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. I'm sure she'll listen to this podcast. And, and she can and, tell you later and then tell me off. Uh, <laughs> for no, making I'm, an assumption. I'm sure, I'm sure she'll, as an educator herself, she will really resonate with these ideas, I'm sure. Yeah, so. my guess is your mum would have been a give you choices mum. Oh, absolutely. Now, my mum when I was born was 17, so she was a big kid. So when I was like five, she was still only 22. In a lot of ways, I remember my mum more like a big sister and my Hungarian grandmother more like a mum because there was just... My mum was always about doing stuff with me as a little kid, but it was always choice. Mm. So I didn't realise until getting to blind primary school where they knew what was good for me, that I'd been exposed to massive levels of 
choice theory as a little kid. Mm. I always remember going, all right, it's a lovely day. We could either walk to the Gawler River and walk along the bank and see if anything's interesting or we could go out to the farm and see what you know the animals are doing or we could go do some other thing. Which thing you want to do? Because mm. all are going to be the same couple of hours, neither here nor there. But that level of choice meant my level of engagement was always high. So suddenly go from so much engagement because I had some say in my destiny to we're going to tell you what's good for you. Mm. Ugh. Now in terms of blind primary school, the redeemable bit was when they started teaching me to use a cane where they had to give you choice because it was about teaching you not to die. <laughs> so you can choose to learn and I'll let you do more interesting things. It sounds like they didn't have a choice, David. Precisely. They <laughs> had to engage with people to get them to engage in using the cane properly. So what it really means is the teachers who grasped it in primary school were the mobility instructors, Oren Newby, Rolly Stewart, and Dennis Peck, who was a PE instructor, who became a mobility instructor. So even though you know, I'm a human who until I discovered Ashtanga yoga really didn't find you know, physical activity very interesting, was boring compared to thinking, I will forever love the fact that those three in a no-choice environment provided choice. Whether they knew what external psychology was, they recognized they got more out of us by letting us have some say in what we did or how we did it. I think it's a common pattern. I think some of these concepts you can naturally stumble upon. I think Glasser has just collected them in a very specific way and... And explained uh, yeah, deeply how they resolution. work. Absolutely. So you can teach someone and share with someone what you're talking about. Absolutely. It's that thing of being able to give something a name. Yeah, You give think, something yeah. a name and it works so much better. That articulation, I suppose, yeah. So, you know, I, I read Choice Theory before I started tutoring at uni mm. and realised, oh, all the years where I taught guitar and violin students... Why is it I kept trying to give him choices? Well, you can learn this song, this song, or this song, but I need you to pick between the three because all of them have the technical things you need to learn next. But I never just gave him one thing. Mm. Something about the experience of being a little kid with my mum, of my mobility, you know, teachers teaching me to use a cane, Dennis Peck going from being a PE teacher to being you know, a mobility teacher, choice theory had been embedded in me so deep. Mm. Now, the irony of going to high school was going from blind primary school to high school, despite the fact Taparoo High was incredibly rough and they had imposed a dress code to get people out of gang colours, <laughs> there was huge amounts of choice. Mm. You really could pick your timetable. So I started in year eight for two weeks and then basically was in year nine, you know, two weeks into my first year of high school. Wow. Because they realised, you're bored out of your mind. Mm. We better give you things to do. So once again, despite the fact the place was a little bit insane, mm. it was awesome because in class, you had to abide by all the external control rules. Of sit at your desk, face forward, do the work that's on the board. There's no choice in what work you do. At least you had some say in what subjects you'd picked. So what I realised, okay, education clearly is almost always compromised, mm. formally speaking. But you can try and put some choice back in. But then the thing is getting students to understand there's some external control, there's some choice. And this has always been the battle teaching at university is to recognise whether it's an honours student, whether it's an arts or international relations intern, or whether it's a whole class of undergrads. The university system, despite all its bullshit rhetoric about wanting freedom and you to develop in your own way, <laughs> just creates hoops you're meant to jump through. That you know, For all the things you're meant to find your way to become the person you want to be, look how hard it is to fill your degree up in an appropriate way they'll sign off on. 
Mm. Oh, no, you've got to get your major filled with the right stuff. Oh, no, you've got to get your minor filled with the right stuff. Oh, no, you have to have this much broadening. Oh, but you can only have that much. You can't have any more than that. <laughs> my my best university experiences are everything outside of my curriculum. <laughs> Thank you. You just kind of proved my point. Yeah. Now, can you assess that from because of the material or how the material was taught or both? Mm, both. Right. I'd say both, you know. Yeah. I think maybe the university is getting something right in saying that the university does put a bunch of opportunities in front of you just because that is the culture that it is. You know, yeah. you can sign up to a club or what have you, but you actually need to go out and, and yeah. Look in terms of your basic yourself. degree, mm. it's a huge amount of external control. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And yet there's the absolutely. lie of it's not you have choice. No. So I think one of the principal reasons why first years sound and behave in a profoundly sullen way within eight weeks of getting to uni mm. is they thought they were transitioning from external control even though they don't know what that is to we get some say in our future and it takes about a term of first year to realize the rhetoric is more free but the reality isn't yeah. And universities agonise over why don't students look engaged? Why are completion rates so low? Yeah, retention. Blah, 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 yeah. blah, 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 blah. It's not rocket science. You promised freedom. You delivered external control. Mm. It's not a mystery. And this is part of the problem of really the whole time I've been teaching at university level is trying to give students as much freedom as humanly possible and having to wait and see if they can grasp it, run with it, work with the contradiction of the overall environment is external control. Mm. The hurdles you have to jump through in terms of assessment are external control. But the way we function in class, treat each other and learn is choice theory. Mm. And some cohorts are exceptionally good at juggling the contradiction. For example, your cohort from last year mm. did a great job of realising David has no choice but to give us assessment, but he's making sure how we get it done is as much about our freedom as it can be. Mm. Whereas this year's complex problem-solving cohort are struggling much more with being long-term victims of external control mm. who I'm not even sure it's they don't know what to do with freedom I think it's they're not sure I'm really giving them freedom. <laughs> it's that mistrust. Yes. I think that was actually kind of sold to me a little bit. I distinctly remember in year 12 being told by my history teacher that you have to play to your lecturer when you write mm. essays at university. This was because I was complaining at her marking mm. because my previous year's history teacher was giving me very good marks and she was giving me very poor marks. Mm. Um, and she says it's a reality that you have to play to your lecturer, your tutor, you have to write to your audience. Mm. Uh, and she said, this is something you have to do at university. And I'm sure your students are thinking the same Precisely. thing, that they have to play to you. They've had too many years of it to believe otherwise. Mm. So what I really saw last year is you know, most of your cohort last year, I had taught for two semesters of security. Yeah, They knew they could argue anything they liked as long as it was credible and well done. Mm. This year's, I've only got one person in the class I've taught before. I see. And I cannot get them to the point of genuinely believing they can have free will. Mm. They need to do good work. 
but they can get there any number of ways. I do want to ask you more about your approach to this because I think the way that you would mark that would take a considerable amount of effort if everyone is freely writing what they want. When you're marking essays where you've given the students the freedom to write about whatever they want to write about, where perhaps you're not particularly an expert in that, any any given field, does that take a lot more effort for you to read? Or, you, or, or could you recommend that to every educator? Or is that something that is very time-consuming? Uh, I would recommend that if you want to be an educator who students can respect, you better learn to mark using choice theory. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you better learn to mark on the basis that all that can be in an essay or a presentation is information. And you need to mark the information and the style in which it was presented, not how the essay or presentation makes you feel. Mm. You know, I've marked neoliberal papers that I would have preferred to burn. Wow. <laughs> but they are the best examples of them I've ever marked. Mm. They still got HDs because I can recognise now that all someone can ever give me is information. Mm. How I choose to respond to it will either make my day better or worse. Mm. So there's been times where, to make myself remember this, I've written the mark for the quality of the information and how it was presented, and then the mark on the basis of how it's affected me. Mm. And there's been essays that, in terms of being a good academic paper, get an 88. In terms of how they affected me, get a 55. (laughs) (laughs) And then I've gone, well, how it affected me emotionally. You know, that doesn't matter. What matters is, was it a good paper mm. in terms of synthesizing information, making an effective argument, making a solid case, writing well, arguing well, linking well? Well, absolutely. I think it's a good basis, a good non-biased basis of why... I mean, there's always going to be inherent bias. However, I think it is a good basis for us bringing in ex-student guests that we've had in. You know, we've got Morris and Sam and Brad who have all talked about things that have been incredibly important and been relevant to our mm. show. And the way that you've assessed what they're talking about is not this essay pleased me or like what they talked no. about pleased uh, me. See, in some cases, Morris's essay on evil, I love because of how well he concluded something in 3,000 words. Mm. But I never would have thought of his answer. You know, when we do the podcast with Jess about anti-fragility. Part of the difference with that one is Jess and I actually massively agree on anti-fragility, but she never wrote an essay on it for me. Yeah, She just came to find it fascinating like I do. Mm. So sometimes what we're going to have with former students coming on, because they know stuff so well, why wouldn't we get them on, mm. is sometimes it's that I do totally agree with them. Mm. But that's often when I haven't marked the essay on it. Yeah, yeah. They've just come to go, at the end of the semester, I'm going to read that book because David kept talking about it and I'm interested. Mm. And then others, it's going to be they got an amazing mark because I was just so impressed with what they did. Mm. doesn't mean I necessarily agree. <laughs> and that's this point. You don't have to like people. It's plenty to just respect them. Mm. And in the same way, there's people you can like where you don't like everything they argue. You like them for thinking so well and being empathetic and being caring. Mm. doesn't mean you're going to agree politically. Yeah. You know, the episode about Australian politics with John Bruni. Mm. 
John's an ex-liberal. Yeah. If I joined anything, I would have been Labor. We (laughs) should dislike much of what each other says, but I will forever respect where his thinking comes from. The same way when you you know you go sometimes oh I don't know too much, I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I respect how you get there, mm. and twenty years from now you'll get there in a way where there's more experience behind it. Mm. But it's the respecting your process that is so important. Mm. So you know being able to respect the work a student did, and them coming to be able to respect that you marked it not objectively because I don't really know what that word means in marking. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's separating from their essay or presentation having an emotional response on you. That's Mm. really what marking is. Mm. I will mark this as information and the style in which it's produced rather than something that causes an emotional response. I want to kind of come back to the the concepts again. Mm. Total behaviour. Yeah, that's where we were going to get next. So for Glasser, immaterial of where you are, what you're doing, you are always experiencing total behaviour. Everything you do is a combination of thought, action, feelings and physiology. You can't ever escape it. Even if you sit still, sitting still is you've thought about it and chosen it and you physically opted to be still. Mm. And that will reinforce or change emotions and physiology depending on what you think and what you do. So you know, the example I gave of taking depressed people and going, okay, let's get you doing larger amounts of exercise with a friend who is supportive but doesn't go poor you, guess what? Survey people, they'll say they feel less depressed time and time again. So in any situation, you are an example of total behavior. Mm. Us being here this morning is an example of total behavior. Mm. We chose to be here. We chose what to talk about. Consequentially will affect our emotional state, which will affect our physiology. And that there's no denying this. Now, Glasser in his total linking of this was ahead of a lot of other people. In a sense, he's tapping into what people like Mark Rollins and Colin McGinn started doing with embodied and embedded consciousness theory. And that is your mind is in a body and your body is in a world. And all of these things are constantly influencing each other. Mm. Uh, it's also getting to the depths of neuroscience where we see now that our conscious activity is such a small part of our brain. The unconscious is huge. You know, the unconscious is as much as 97% of what we do. But by choosing to be conscious, by choosing to go, I am going to think about this, I am going to do this, mm. you start to impact on the unconscious which then impacts on your emotional state and your physiological state. So in any situation where you go, I've got no choices, Uh, I keep thinking about the terrible thing that just happened, bullshit, you've always got a choice. Mm. You can always choose to change your thinking. You can always choose to make yourself do 50 push-ups. Guaranteed it will change your emotional state. It will force an endorphin rush. It will alter your physiology just enough that you may not feel a lot better, but you won't feel as bad. <laughs> you know, it's part of the reason why, again, I've said it to you enough times before, off air and sometimes on air, that the brain can't take care of itself on its own. Mm. You need to use the physical to change it, but you have to change your mind to change what your body does. You have to change what you're thinking to change what you're doing. If you change what you're doing, you'll change how you feel. 
that these things are always integrated. And Glass's real point with people was to go, okay, you've come to see me because you're depressed. Mm. And a few sessions in the argument, he goes, okay, I want you to think about this in a new way. You are actively depressing. You are thinking about things in repetition that keep you in this state. You are choosing to do very little and to sit very still and to feel all hunched and curled up. Now, make the choice to think about something positive you can achieve. Make the choice to go for a walk, then come back and tell me how you feel. Mm. And time and time he found people, they hated the idea that they were depressing, that they were contributing to their own situation. But time and time he found that when he challenged them to think about something else and do something else, it didn't get rid of the problem, but it took the edge off and gave them wiggle room to then change their thinking in a more meaningful way, to change what they were doing in a more meaningful way. Instead of changing their behaviour and something like go for a walk to feel better, it would be change the bad behaviour that's constantly messing up your relationship with your partner or parents. Now, is this what... Uh, is this where this distinction between want and need comes in? Because I would argue, you know, I've had this conversation with a few people who have at least had depressive episodes or experiences where, and I think this is possibly even true of myself having gone through something like that, where what I want to do will put me in into a depressive state or what I want to do is depressing me. Yes. And what I need to do is is not. But it takes a, a, a certain amount of discipline, I think, to pull myself out of doing what I want to do and, and doing do what, what I need, need to do. Because okay. Glasser doesn't ever use want and need as his words for this. I see. That's not his thing. But, yeah, you've tapped into the want and need thing in, in a, a really interesting way. And that is recognizing if you want to be out of this state, it's not about going back and working out what went wrong five years ago. You know what went wrong. And if you keep thinking about it, you will keep diving into it. Mm. You need to do something different. And the things you can directly affect is what you think about and what you do. So this is to me where I love the fact it's so stoic. Do small, practical things now. Toughen up, buttercup. (laughs) Get the discipline to start doing little things. And the little things will not change the future, but they will empower you to change the future. Mm. And this is where... Glasson makes the points in other books other than choice theory. If he's not going to be able to help people, this is normally the point where they get stuck. Mm. They're not ready to change what they're going to think and what they're going to do to get a better outcome. They want to keep believing it's all about the past and making peace with the past or understanding the past. Mm. The past has happened. One of the big things I think that put Glasser at odds with a lot of psychiatry is a lot of psychiatry was fixated on getting to the heart of the matter and understanding the heart of the matter. Whereas Glasser had realised, no, that takes too long and there's a risk of getting lost in what's already causing you pain. Whereas if we can get some little gains now, you can add to them. You can double down on the little gains. So this is where I really love the virtue ethics side of it. And I think somewhere in the way my mum found things me to do as a tiny kid, somewhere in the way that Oren and Rowley and Dennis taught me to use a cane, was there's always a choice. You can always choose something away from the darkness of hating being blind and being consumed by rage that will end you lost in a rage that will just make 
the world smaller and less relevant if you let it. Mm. So somewhere I learned choice theory without even knowing what it was Mm -hmm. and concluded by watching most people around me, whatever they're doing doesn't look like what I'm doing. Mm. So I better just shut up and do what I'm doing because it's stopping me spinning into a darkness of rage. So then reading choice theory was, okay, here's a guy who's worked out exactly what you know, I've worked out and I didn't know how he did it and here's a guy that's teaching other people and everything he's teaching I've come up with some variant of and it's worked so for me if I'd say I had my you know my choice theory breakthrough moment even before I read the book it would have been the 28th of August 1998 wow I jokingly <laughs> refer to as brain snap day <laughs> it's a day it finally dawned on me there is no making peace with being blind can't make peace with being blind it just sucks but that's okay because it's not going to change what's going to change is any day where it doesn't consume me i have a better day because i get under with doing constructive things Mm. so the lesson is don't try and reason with it don't try and rationalize it don't try and make it better in the past you can't simply change what you do and think about in the moment and i'm hoping it's already kind of obvious that in this case, for our listeners, being blind is a metaphor for any kind of suffering. Yeah, whatever your suffering is, pick your own pony. Yeah? You pick whatever thing causes you problems and recognize you can't change it. Mm. But you can choose to think differently and do different things now. And the more often you choose that, the more capable you'll be of doing new things in a way you prefer. Doing Not doing what is expedient. Now, yeah. Jade particularly, my partner, has said that it's not always obvious for people who are suffering what they can do that they need to do. It's not always obvious. I think that's where Glass's book is so significant Mm. because you don't need to know an absolute perfect make it better answer. You just need to think up a little thing that will make you feel more empowered to find a better answer. Mm. So if the simple thing of saying... I'm going to think about something positive. Mm-hmm. Which friend to call to arrange to have lunch? Yeah. And I'm then going to go and have that lunch. And I'm not going to talk about being down. I'm going to ask them how their day's going. What fun thing are they planning? And at the end of it, I'll plan to do another fun thing with them. Mm. That is a powerful return from the brink. Mm. From that, you will see the power of thinking differently and doing differently until you see things that can more directly affect you know, the root cause of pain and suffering. But don't start with the root cause if you're not ready. I like drawing this back to other things we've talked about because immediately that just sounds a lot like Jordan Peterson concepts. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, whether Peterson's ever read Glasser, don't know. <laughs> but it's so important in Glasser that you start with what you can do. Mm. But, you know, if you can start thinking about, okay, which thing in my quality world is causing me grief? Is it, you know, having ideals that are unattainable? Mm. Is it the image of, you know, parents that you can't possibly ever meet their expectations? Well, are they their expectations or are they the version of the expectations you've put in your quality world? Mm. Mm. What version of your partner have you put in your quality world? Now, a big thing I realised from learning choice theory mm-hmm. somehow from being a little kid is both with friends, partners, I've always had the perspective of let people be themselves. Mm. Tell them when their behavior really pisses you off 
or disappoints you. <laughs> Quietly, gently, not in front of public, don't humiliate them, but make it clear what you're doing is upsetting me. Mm. Now, I'm not going to tell you to stop it because I don't have any right to tell you to stop anything, but I can tell you how your behaviour is affecting me. Now, it's got some degree of external control in it. I'm happy to tell you that I've just done a dose of external control on you. <laughs> but it's better than me trying to manipulate you into other behaviour. Yeah. I can tell you how you're affecting me rather than trying to change you. Now, that's incredibly important for relationships because yeah. if, if you say nothing, you will grow to resent whatever behaviour. And you will put them in your quality world as someone who causes you pain yeah, rather right. than joy. That's right. So for our listeners, perhaps we can just slightly recap on choice theory as a whole. Well, okay. I suppose at the end is a good point to maybe try and explain what choice theory is. Mm. You know, for Glasser, choice theory is always about trying to improve a current relationship because what he concluded is that if you can improve a current relationship, you will start doing more and more to flourish more and more. Mm. So immaterial of what thing happened in the past, it's never the issue for Glasser. You know that was a bad thing. You know it caused you problems. So be it. Improve a current relationship. That will make you feel empowered and emboldened to flourish. Mm. And that to improve a current relationship, you need to recognize perhaps how that person is in your quality world. Have you idealized them too much? Have you turned them into part of your own problem? Mm. You need to think about them differently and then you need to change what you do and what you think about to start bringing better outcomes into your life. And start tiny. Don't start with huge things. Start with little things. Like I said, decide today that you're going to work out which friend to call and arrange to have a coffee or have mm. lunch. Or you're going to decide, today I'm going to read for an hour just because I used to love to read and I need to do something that will both feel rewarding and brain expanding. And I'm then going to tell someone I care about about what I read. Mm. You know, don't tell them about your woeful day. Tell me you learned something new. Yeah. So choice theory is about recognizing in any given situation there is a very good chance that people are throwing external control psychology at you. Even if they think it is good for you, they are trying to diminish your choices. Glasses, not, not consciously thinking no, not consciously. about diminishing, diminishing your choices. But, but yeah. they know what's good for you and they're going to make that happen. <laughs> mm. you know, the big shift you need to make is to go, all people can ever do is put information in front of me mm. and I need to choose how I'm going to respond to that information. If I believe someone is trying to control me, whether they know it or not, my choice is to say, look, you're only giving me one choice and it's not really a choice I like. Mm. Could I give you two choices about what we do next? It fits really well into a philosophical point of view and insofar as that we don't have freedom, we have choices. Precisely. And that's really where I got to this point of going, the, the whole free will argument, oh, I don't care, mm. don't have free will, but you do have choice. Because choice you can use in any situation to go, how will I transcend the apparent lack of choice I've been given? And also to recognize your unconscious just demands things. Mm. It demands, I want beverage. Mm. Well, it's the one that demands, I want sweet chocolatey beverage. Well, guess what, brain? You don't get a sweet chocolatey beverage. You get water. I've got choice. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, there's a good reason why I'm not going to be naming this episode Choice Theory because 
from the outset, I think my educated opinion about that, if we were talking about psychology, would be that we choose our emotions, which is not what this is about no. at all. It's about how you react to the emotions that are presented to you. Well, that's why I suggested if you're going to put choice theory in the title, just call it William Glass's choice yeah, theory true, true. to distinguish the difference. And because, again, you know, Glass is not widely read anymore, I don't think. Well, probably still in Europe where it's taught. Here mm-hmm. I imagine it's been ignored. But still as a means to empower people to go, you always have a choice. You may not like the choices you can come up with, Mm. but do you like the fact that people are forcing their choices on you anymore? Mm. I would still rather do something I don't like, but at least I chose it. Yeah, that's it. Than do something that someone else chose for me by external control. And at some level with Glasser, it's hard to accept when... Your old suffering, like in my case, is being blind. Mm. That the real issue is improve a current relationship. But once I started doing it, I realized, no, he's right. You can't fix whatever it is you carry with you. It comes from the past. Mm. But if you improve a current relationship, your day is so much nicer. Mm. And the nicer your day is, the more you go into tomorrow realizing you have the power to shape it through choices. Mm. You, know, you can't go, I'm going to be happy. No, that's rubbish. You know, again, it's why I'm so so blah, blah about people who go, well, let's focus on being happy. Yeah. Yeah, can I take you out the back with a big stick? <laughs> that doesn't work. It definitely does not. We can choose on changing what we think. We can choose on changing what we do. And the likelihood is if we change both, we'll feel happy. Hmm. But happy always has to be somewhere after choosing, thinking, choosing behavior and they will normally enhance our flourishing and enhancing our flourishing will normally enhance our ability to be happy Mm. but it's three steps away from now Mm. i certainly feel this episode is going to have a lot of re-listenability whilst i don't think there are gaps in what we've talked about i'm sure there are simply because Mm. well i'm sure there are simply because I still struggle to define choice theory and I don't know if that's my failing or if it's because actually you have to understand the constituent parts of quality world, mm. external control and everything is a total behavior. Perhaps what we're recommending is that people read the book. You know, it, it everything that we've talked about though seems like a big enough concept that I could sit and we could talk about each of those things for a very long time. And maybe what we need to do is like if in an episode it seems like one of these concepts fits the episode we'll revisit that concept for two or three because really if you can accept external control if you can accept that all people do is give you information and you have to make a choice about how to respond Mm. think about what and who is in your quality world and how it's affecting you and then realize everything you do is a total behavior and the best way to enhance your well-being is to improve a relationship now. Mm. There's five big things. Together, they're choice theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it really is quite a big thing to take on board unless, like me, you accidentally took on probably at least three out of the five without knowing how or why. Mm. Right. Well, to finish up is, uh, the, you know, we mentioned t- to begin with, the book is 20 years old. Um, I think I've heard criticism that not focusing on or not respecting problems from from your past is perhaps a little naive Mm. um are there any other considerations that we should take into account when reading this book or researching it 
I think the key thing is Glass's core ideas that we've talked about could all still be used forever. Mm. But his stuff where he tried to make sense of, say, the extent to which how you think and what you do contributes to autoimmune disorders. Mm. He was heading in the right direction, but he was probably overemphasizing. Mm. Yeah, I really think in the case of depression, he just got to the answer that you are contributing, but there's nothing wrong with your brain. Mm. You're contributing by what you do and what you think but there's nothing wrong with your brain. So there he was there very early. Some other things you just go, this is a guy who was probably in his 60s or 70s in the 90s. He was an old man who'd seen so much of the world by then. He has a different viewpoint. Mm. But like the best of all thinking, it may have been written in its time with examples from its time, but the majority of the best of it transcends time because it's about humans and is relatively timeless. Mm. And in respect to ignoring or not giving much weight to your problems of your past? We've covered it a little bit. It's recognising you know that problem's there. You know what that problem is, was, the impact it's had. Hmm. But if you accept the idea of total behaviour, from that point onwards, you have let your thinking and doing be affected by that day Hmm. or that event or that cause of suffering. So you can't change until you change your thinking and doing. And if you change your thinking and doing, that's what overcomes the past. Mm. Better understanding the past can be useful, but not as the only way forward because diving in the past isn't in Glassarian terms or in virtue ethics terms or in Stoic terms going to fix anything. Mm. You have to change the next thing you do. You have to change the next thing you think about because you live in the present by projecting yourself into the future. Mm. So don't ever hide from the past. Don't lie it existed. But also don't keep looking that way or you'll keep missing the present and the future. And it's only in changing what you think and do in the next few seconds that you'll start to see you can alter the impact of the past because the past maintains its impact because you can't escape doing and thinking the same way because you're still being so affected. So you have to stop being so affected and start thinking and doing differently. It's not to deny the past. It's to deny its power over you starting now. Mm. And that can be very hard to do. It's the reason why a book got thrown at my head. (laughs) Mm. But that's okay. Well, I certainly hope that our listeners only struggle to the extent that they can overcome it (laughs) with you know, taking this information in and and perhaps are even inspired to read the book. Um, I'm certainly going to take a lot away from this episode. Um, It's answered a lot of my questions um, about the world. And, yeah, thank you very much, David, for sharing. Thanks for, once again, the chance to talk about it. I don't think until we were talking about it last week I'd realised the extent to which so much of it was either in there or in there more deeply because of this book Mm. and defines how I function. Mm. So in some ways... For anyone who's gone back and re-listened to the episode about being blind, that episode and this together are probably good ways to explain to any new listener how and where how I function comes from. Mm, True. But this one in in particular, they they both are. Like if you were to use that one for like the, the, the being blind podcast first and then listen to this one. I think it would be a good thing to link two people together. And when we finally get the Facebook page up, maybe we should put a a note on there, hey, if you're just starting, Mm. do these two first. That's right. All right, well, thank you very much, David, for joining us. Thank you, Tim, and thank you, audience. Thank you.
listeners, you didn't think you were going to hear me after the end of the music, did you? I'm here today to say we now have merchandise. You can have a Blind Insights t-shirt. You can have a Blind Insights pin. You can have a Blind Insights hoodie. You can have a Blind Insights coffee cup. All you need to do is go to oscast-network.myshopify.com and click on Blind Insights and you can see all our products. Thank you very much to the OzCast Network for their support and making this happen.